Hey folks, this is Charlotte Clymer. My pronouns are she, her, and you are listening to a brand new episode of Charlotte's Web Thoughts. This is the audio slash podcast version of the actual Charlotte's Web Thoughts on Substack.com. You can go subscribe to that at charlotteclimer.substack.com. It's completely free. All you need is an email. It takes less than five seconds to sign up. So please do go subscribe, charlotteclimer.substack.com. November 15th, 2022. I hate the Senate bill and we need it to pass. This Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will bring the Respect for Marriage Act to the floor for a vote. This is the piece of legislation meant to protect marriage equality in the event that this current Supreme Court eventually decides to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges the landmark case that legalized same-sex marriage in 2015. This past July, the House overwhelmingly passed their version of the bill, with 47 Republicans joining the full Democratic caucus and seven GOP members not voting. Action on the Senate version of the bill was delayed until after the midterm election in what was seen as a clear effort to garner necessary Republican support in exchange for the issue not being weaponized against them in the final stretch of campaigning. So here we are. On Monday, Senators Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from Wisconsin, the bill's leader, and Kirsten Sinema, who caucuses with the Democrats, were joined by GOP Senators Rob Portman of Ohio, Susan Collins of Maine, and Tom Tillis of North Carolina in a statement describing how the bill addresses the controversy of this issue and urging their colleagues to support its passage. The vote on Wednesday is for cloture. That's the, whole, that's the part of this whole process in which the full Senate advances a piece of legislation to a final vote by moving to restrict debate. This is otherwise known as overcoming the filibuster, that threshold of 60 votes that I'm sure you've heard about in the news constantly. That cloture vote will set a time limit of 30 hours for consideration on the bill and then a final vote can be taken on whether or not to pass it. Obviously, successful cloture votes almost always lead to final passage. So by the end of Friday, unless we're due for some big unforeseen surprise, millions of families will have an additional layer of protection against marriage discrimination. Sounds great, right? Not so fast. You've probably heard about this bill along with the word codify, as in this bill will codify marriage equality into federal law. It will not. The word codify has been used very fast and loose by much of political media over the past 24 hours in describing this bill. And it's just plain wrong and deeply misleading. Here's what the bill does specifically regarding marriage licenses. It requires the federal government to recognize same-sex marriage licenses. If Obergefell should fall, the federal government would still protect those marriages in every aspect under its purview, on everything from Social Security benefits to military families. This is why reporters have used that word codify. But it's misleading because of the second part of this. The second part, it requires states that would not issue same-sex mar same marriage licenses to recognize those licenses issued in states where same-sex marriage is legal. That's a good thing, but also it's basically saying that a state does not have to issue 
same-sex marriage licenses. Under this bill, if Obergefell should fall. So if you read the senator's statement, this is what they meant by, quote, the bill would guarantee that valid marriages between two individuals are given full faith and credit, regardless of the couple's sex, race, ethnicity, or national origin, which, by the way, this is also a protection for interracial marriage. That's referencing Article 4, Section 1 of the Constitution. So a same-sex marriage license under this bill that was issued in California would be honored in Texas, even if Obergefell is overturned and Texas bans same-sex marriage licenses from being issued under its state authority. Even in that case, this bill would guarantee that the California license would be honored in Texas. This is problematic for many reasons, one of the more obvious of which is that not every family living in an anti-LGBTQ state can travel to a pro-LGBTQ state to procure a marriage license. You know those periodic reminders about people not being able to move out of hurricane zones because it costs money to move and restart somewhere else? Same principle here. Many folks simply can't afford this nonsense. Currently, the constitutions of 30 states, in some way, shape, or form, right now, ban same-sex marriage. And they have only been prevented from being enforced because of Obergefell, that Supreme Court ruling. So if that Supreme Court ruling should be overturned in the future, all of those state constitutional bans, all 30 of them, would be enforceable immediately, unless they're repealed before then. It used to be 31. But in 2020, Nevada became the first and so far the only state to repeal its constitutional ban on same-sex marriage. Now, if you go to my blog, I make it really easy. I stole this really great image from uh, Wikipedia uh, that shows the degrees of state bans. So some of these states only ban same-sex marriage. Some of them ban ban same-sex marriage and civil unions. And some of them have a smorgasbord of of bans of different transactions and relationships related to insurance and whatnot. But regardless, 30 of these states absolutely do ban same-sex marriage. So that's not good. And if Obergefell was overturned, we would kind of need this bill to save ourselves. So why not pass a bill that guarantees full marriage equality throughout the United States? That's where this gets upsetting and complicated. First, the bill would get challenged and probably thrown out for legal reasons that are too complicated to get into here within the space constraints, and which I frankly don't feel qualified to convey with 100% accuracy. Here's the bigger problem to me. Here's the most immediate problem. Even with marriage equality more popular than ever, Gallup reported 71% for it uh, among Americans this past June, we simply cannot reach 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. There are not, right now, there are not 10 Republican senators who would support full marriage equality. We just don't have it. You might be thinking, well, gee, if Americans overwhelmingly support this, wouldn't GOP senators face consequences at the ballot box for failing to support it? Some would. Most would not. At least not enough to be the deciding factor. We just don't have 10 Republican senators who are vulnerable enough or perhaps feel vulnerable enough to be pressured into supporting a full marriage equality bill. This is not a unique problem. 
Last year, Gallup reported 55% of Americans identify as pro-choice, the highest rate taken by the survey since 1996. And yet, despite recent electoral losses that were clearly due to the Dobbs decision, the vast majority of Republican elected officials clearly do not feel much pressure to change their policy views on abortion access. Just because the vast majority of Americans support something does not mean their elected officials are doing right by them. I think we've learned that by now. The GOP, true to form, would rather take their chances with their base on this issue in an election. They think it's worth the risk. I'd like to believe most of them are wrong. And it'd be great if we could assume this will be enough of an issue that gets enough of them defeated in 2024 to make the difference. But that scenario is an entanglement of assumptions that risks everything. Let's start here. And this is the most important thing I want you to take away. The 2024 Senate map is brutal for Democrats. That's the election two years from now. 33 Senate seats will be up. 23 of them are Democratic seats. We know that we will have tight Democratic incumbent seats to defend in Arizona, Maine, Michigan, Montana, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. That's at least eight seats in which we have incumbents who are going to be in tight races. Eight. The GOP has maybe three, Florida, Missouri, and Indiana. And I'm being generous to us by saying that those are maybe tight seats, because they're probably not. I'm also being generous by not including Virginia for us because Senator Tim Kaine is a strong incumbent. But that seat is far from guaranteed. If, if, if Tim Kaine wasn't as strong as he was as, uh, as he is as an incumbent, it would be nine vulnerable seats that Democrats have. So you get the picture here. The 2024 Senate elections are not looking good for us, but we're not done yet. Some of our incumbents may retire or decline to run again. Possibly John Tester of Montana, possibly Angus King of Maine, who caucuses with Democrats, we could lose a critical incumbency advantage in Maine and Montana. Finally, there's ticket splitting. That is that phenomenon which becomes a significant disadvantage in swing states for a president's party. It's when voters decide that when they're voting for, the, uh, for an incumbent president or uh, for the clear favorite who is the, uh, the president, that they'll vote for the opposite party when it comes to the Senate. That's ticket splitting or down ticket. Regardless, if voters choose to send President Biden back to the White House, and we're very much hoping they will, that also means that we're likely to see ticket splitting. It is, folks, it's highly unlikely that we're going to keep the Senate in 2024. We're going to fight like hell. We're going to do the best we can. But the odds are definitely against us. It's partly why getting Reverend Warnock, Democrat of Georgia, reelected next month is so important. He could be the seat that makes the difference for the long haul. It's quite possible that we barely break even in 2024. Honestly, that feels, even that feels a little, little overly optimistic, but it's possible. Maybe we do win these seats, get to 50-50. The reference seat could end up keeping us there. And if Manchin, who is up for re-election in 2024, does win, and is part of that 50-50 split, we may not get a chance to revisit legislation like this anyway. I think it is very foolish to assume that we'll be able to put protections in place after the 2024 election if Obergefell is overturned. 
it could very well happen that we somehow do way better than expected, reelect President Biden in a landslide, and we still fall short of holding the Senate. Then what happens? No, I think it is completely ridiculous to risk everything on a hope and a prayer that we outperform against bad Senate odds in 2024. In the meantime, we can considerably shore up protections with this bill. I'm not happy with it. I'm angry and I'm worried. I think these Republicans are hypocritical bigots, and it infuriates me that they're encouraging and leveraging hatred for their own bottom line. I am enraged at their cynical pandering. This bill pisses me off. But it's not about me being happy. It's not about any of us being happy. It's about survival. It's about putting up a wall of protection that could shield millions of families from state-sanctioned discrimination. We don't have any other reasonable options here. But if we do pass this, we'll have protections for millions of families that otherwise wouldn't have had them. And then we'll just keep fighting for more. It's painfully slow, incremental progress. It is disheartening, it is exhausting, and it is necessary. Every senator needs to vote for this bill.